Welcome back, everyone, to the MA Healthcare Insights Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Thomas. Today, I'm also joined by one of my co-founders, Andre Ulloa, who is an executive advisor with us. Now, before we dive into the specifics of this conversation and detail the guests that will be joining us, I want to share a brief background on who we are as a company and ultimately what the vision of this podcast is. So for those returning, thanks for coming back. For those that are new, this segment is particularly for you. So M&A Healthcare Advisors was formed out of a strong desire to provide an elevated level of advisory services to the lower middle market, specifically healthcare businesses, as you can tell by our name. Uh, we saw a void in the market, and we've been filling that ever since. Um, this podcast in particular is focused on identifying transactional truths for those who care, which is a tongue-in-cheek way of saying uh, we want to identify what is the reality of an M&A transaction for a business owner. What is the day-in, day-out process, the emotional process of going through selling your business, the logistics of a diligence process? And part of that, of course, is interviewing buyers and investors on the buy side to understand how they're approaching businesses, their views on the overall market. And really, that's the vision for this podcast, is to identify the reality of what it takes to make it through an entire M&A transaction. So today, we have a great conversation planned. We're going to be talking about many of those things with our special guest here. And as a brief bit of, of background on him, he received his BA in economics from Columbia University, an MBA with honors from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's the managing partner, at, a managing partner at Trivest, a leading private equity firm focused exclusively on founder-owned businesses. So George Gross will be joining us. George, thanks for, for joining the podcast here this morning. Thanks for having me, Mark. Absolutely. If you could just briefly give a, I, I gave a background there, but if you could expand on your background a bit, why you're at Trivest, and ultimately some of the acquisition criteria that you hold within healthcare in particular. Sure. So uh, Trivest was founded back in 1981. I myself joined the firm full-time in 2006, so coming up on my 17th anniversary. Uh, it's been uh, quite a run. Uh, when I first started at the firm, we had one fund with $315 million of assets under management. I think it was around six or seven portfolio companies. Today, we manage four and a half billion uh, in assets under management, 46 portfolio companies, and have really expanded our team uh, up to almost 70 individuals currently, both in Miami as well as around the U.S. and into Canada. Um, you know, as it relates to our investment criteria, I personally work on what we call our control side. Uh, that includes three different fund extensions um, uh, that range in size. Um, the funds are all relatively large funds. Uh, but it really about, uh, you know, the size company that we're starting with. And then we also have a fourth extension that is uh, focused on non-control investment. So uh, as you mentioned, it's exclusively family founder owned focused on the platform side. Um, and ultimately, we're trying to help business owners transition some of the ownership in their business and then ultimately help them transform their business along the way. We can invest in companies from everywhere from one million of EBITDA up to 30, 40, even 50 million dollars of EBITDA. Um, and really, whether it's control or non-control, we have a solution for those for those folks. That's helpful. Thank you for that. So for this first part of the conversation, I want to focus on market activity. Um, so a particular question in regards to that is we're hearing about systemic declines in M&A activity, especially when you look at this year compared to last year or even the previous two years. Are you seeing that within healthcare M&A? Uh, yes, we are. We're seeing it across the board, right? I mean, I think the, the, the reality is that the M&A market is tight. Um, you know, a big portion of that is what's going on in the financing community. Uh, certainly the, uh, the events of the last couple of days have created additional uncertainty 
Um, for those uh, timing wise, the, it was the meltdown of uh, Silicon Valley Bank, which obviously sent a reverberation throughout the banking industry. Um, and really, at the end of the day, uh, the M&A market really suffers from when there's uncertainty. Right. Um, it's very much it's a lot easier to invest when you kind of know what's coming, even if it's a recession. I think the issue that we have right now is nobody knows when it's coming and how bad it's going to be. Uh, and then you layer in some of the other uncertainties around the financing markets and the bank market uh, generally. And, and that level of uncertainty really makes people kind of hold their cards pretty tight to the vest. Um, and so we've seen it not only in healthcare but across the board, although I will say healthcare overall probably has more activity than the other industries. Uh, and the primary reason for that is that it's not as um, it's a recession resistant uh, market. Right. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to underwrite. Um, you know, whether you're focused on physician groups, um, you know, people are still going to get injured. We own an ortho group, for example, right? People are still going to need surgeries um, or you're really focused on uh, services, which we have a revenue cycle management company in our portfolio, right? People are still going to go to the hospitals and the hospitals still need to bill and collect their insurance and their patient receivables. Um, and so I would say that, you know, healthcare overall probably has more activity than the other sectors. Uh, but M&A generally across the board is down by virtue of what we just talked about. Yeah, George, I was, you know, it's interesting because we talk a lot about these ethereal concepts and we've talked a lot. We'll talk a lot about trust and, you know, especially with what Trivest has done to create confidence with not only its operators, but also with its LPs in terms of, you know, how it manages these businesses and these portfolios. But when we talk about uncertainty, it's really an emotion. And so much of what we find in the lower middle market is that it's a distilling of certain things that happen in large cap markets. But the lower middle market tends to have probably a little bit more resilience against it, just in terms of, I would say, the fragmentation, the fact that operating businesses, in my mind, are really good hedges against inflationary markets. Uh, you know, you can grow these businesses. Healthcare also has that added level of resilience. It tends to be, you know, that there there's an inverse correlation uh, in the economy with its with the excess, the systemic issues that happen in an economy and the growth of healthcare, probably because you know the patient base and grows. Uh, you know, we definitely see that in behavioral health. Uh, but, you know, there's growing demographics. Uh, and, you know, Medicare remains a good payer that remains solvent. It, it's going to continue to pay. But we see a lot of growth in payers that are uh, policies, uh, insurance policies, HMOs, the integrated networks. We see a lot of the movement towards uh, smaller businesses within the continuum of care that are operating. So, I mean, a lot of what you're talking about are what we're seeing too. How do you see it from the investment side? And when you talk about capital that you have that's uh, committed and ready to deploy, is, is it still that you, you're looking for these types of investments and you have to deploy capital to the extent that you, know, you, you have an investment group that, needs to, that has, expects a certain return on investment? Yeah, it's a great question, Andy. And I think it's a really interesting one because I think the last 12 to 18 months was probably the most active fundraising market, at least certainly in my career. 
um, after the buying spree during COVID, everybody came back out um, and GPs were raising a, a lot of capital. It's interesting because to your point, I think what's happening in the M&A market is very much a sentiment driven thing, right? Exactly what you described. It's emotional. Um, but the way that we look at it internally within the four walls of Trivest is that our investors you know, pay us to invest across all cycles, right? And really, at the end of the day, you try to manage the risk, right, whether that's through price or whether that's through capital structure um, or focus on particular industries that might be a little bit more recession resistant than one that might be more cyclical. Right. But at the end of the day, there is pressure to deploy capital and there's a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines. I find the lending market in particular um, quite a quite interesting Right. Uh, for many years, when rates were extraordinarily low, uh, they, they couldn't lend you enough money. Right. Um, and now they can finally get some yield. Interest rates are higher and they've all tightened up. Now, obviously, that's you know, there's a whole debt service component related to that. Right. Um, and ultimately trying to manage some risk as, as as it relates to cash flow within a business. But if you think about it from a from a business standpoint. Right. Now is the time when you should be lending money. Because that's when you can actually get yield, right? Their cost of capital went up. I get all the other stuff. But when rates were essentially zero, they were giving it away, right? Um, and now they can make some rate and they're not. And so there is this kind of herd mentality as well that happens, right? Um, and nobody wants to be the first one to go, right? Um, and then, and that's really what happened in shaping up now, like kind of what happened right, right after COVID started, right? Everyone kind of really batting down the hatches, tightened up. And then they realized that it was going to be here for a while. And then everybody went on a buying spree. Right. And it was you just needed the dam to open. And once the dam opened, it became a free for all. And so we're hopeful that here in the second quarter, maybe third quarter, as we start to get a little bit more certainty, particularly around what the Fed is doing. Right. Because that has a big emotional component um, and, and, and an impact on people's psyche. That once we start getting a little bit more certainty, we'll start to see um, a, a number of, of situations start to start to come out to market. And that will hopefully kind of relieve some of the the pent up demand that's out there. George, man, you covered so much right there. <laughs> I know it's like it's like you just broke down the issues with this economy in three minutes, right? Like, like I think that there's another layer to this, which was that you, they weren't lending because they were because the, the bond markets or the or treasuries. That's how they were doing their quantitative easing, right? They were sort of flowing this paper through these banks, and then those banks were sort of deploying that. And then a lot of this, uh, these runs that are are happening, is because they're showing unrealized losses because of all that. And uh, and then people are getting scared, right? So it's an interesting thing. It's like the the mechanics of all this sort of Keynesian monetary policy that we've been doing is then finally kind of dawning on folks that are like, okay, well, I want to pull my my money out of the bank. But the reality is that there's still a great investment it now in fixed income because you can actually get returns on it that you couldn't get for the last, you know, 15 years or so. So how does that does does that even come close to the kind of returns that from a private equity world you're you're competing against like do you, do you even compete against fixed income in any way as a substitute for your lps 
Not really. Um, you know, look, I think most funds will have some level of preferred return. I would say that fixed income now can probably generate uh, a similar level of quote unquote preferred return. Um, but I think what what folks are looking at from from an equity perspective is certainly a, a higher return profile that's commensurate with the risk that's being taken. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, further down in the capital structure that requires to be uh, getting paid a little bit more money as a result. Um, you know, I would say that the, the, the market, though, is just it's in a very unique spot right now. Um, you know, I, I would say that um, it's, it's generally slow across the board, right, um, across all market segments. The large caps in particular are getting hit the hardest, right, because the syndicated loan market, which is required to kind of finance a lot of those deals, has been really dislocated and, and candidly shuttered for, for a long period of time here. So I think that's why you're not seeing the announcements of some of these larger cap deals getting done um, because the, that financing market is really dried up. And the lower end of the middle market where we play primarily these days, um, and I guess it's all about how you define the middle market and lower middle market or even small cap, right? Everyone's got a different definition. But at the end of the day, I think that market still has at least – uh, some legs, right? I would say it's definitely not what it was at the end of 21 or even middle of 22. Uh, but I think the reality is that there's plenty of money down there. There are still folks that are willing to lend, although it's way more expensive and you can't get as much of it. Um, but those that market is not as impacted as the larger cap, which, you know, kind of going back to some of the, the previous question that you, you were asking and talking about when you're describing the segmentation of the markets. You know, I think the, the, the middle market is, is a better place to play generally, right, because of that fragmentation that you talked about uh, and the fact that there's, there's, there are more options, right? When you start getting into billion-plus dollar deals, there are not that many sponsors that can play in that market and there's not that many lenders that can support that market, right? The further downstream you go, the more capital is available, right? I would say that the profile of that capital is a little bit different, right? The cost is going to be a little bit different. Uh, the terms of that capital is going to be a little bit different. But at the end of the day, there's more of it, right? And so I think that really kind of changes the dynamic. I think some of the dislocation that's happened in the large cap market impacts the middle market primarily from an exit standpoint, right? Um, when you think about what, you know, particularly in healthcare, where there's a lot of strategic deals that get done. Obviously, there's a lot of sponsor money that's going into healthcare as well. But as you build size and scale, a lot of times you become very attractive to a strategic buyer. With that large cap market that's kind of really kind of dislocated and frankly, you know, really quiet right now, it impacts the exit more so than it does for us, at least uh, in our world, um, you know, the purchasing of it. So I would tell you, uh, I, I kind of went off on a tangent there, uh, Andy, but the reality is that like, you know, we don't really we don't really compete with fixed income from a return standpoint, uh, but there is a fight for dollars. Right. I mean, there, there's you know, nobody's money is greener than anybody else's. Right. And so the way that we view the world is you really got to differentiate in other ways. Right. Um, and so that's how Travis has really kind of built our model. And one of the ways that we do that is by exclusively focusing on family founder owned companies and really building our entire business model around that. And we'll get into more of that uh, later. But, uh, you know, it is it is important that uh, people realize that, you know, it, a dollar is just a dollar. Right. It's around what comes behind that. Um, and, and it's really hard to compete if you're just competing on money. Right. Um, you really you really need to have something else that you're bringing to the table. Thanks for that, George. Um, you'd mentioned the increased cost of capital. I'm curious how that affects your approach to a deal 
uh, given given the status of this year compared to last year? Yeah, look, I mean, the the it's not only the cost, but it's actually the the quantity, right? Um, you know, when you think about you know leverage multiples, they have they have definitely come in, right? Uh, they've tightened, uh, particularly for the senior bank market. Right. And even the senior direct lenders, everybody has tightened their credit profile, you know, roughly a half a turn or so. Right. Um, that's partially to offset some of the rising costs. Right. Um, and also partially to offset some of the uncertainty related to the economy. So what I would tell you is, at least for us personally. Right. I'll speak to us personally and then I'll speak more broadly about the market. But we have always been very conservative on how we approach leverage. Right. Um, you know, our, our goals are to make sure that our operating companies have the flexibility to do what's right for their business rather than um, what's right for the bank. And so as a result, the cost of capital is really just uh, a shifting of some of some money from the right pocket to the left pocket. Well, we can't invest in the company as much because we got to pay more interest, but it doesn't impact us as much. It doesn't it doesn't you know create this massive, massive, uh, you know, albatross around our neck. That said, right, I would tell you that, you know, the, the lack of capital uh, in the lending markets is a chiller of value, right? Um, the sponsor community in particular requires uh, a good, healthy lending market to be able to pay outsized multiples, premium multiples. And so uh, the fact that the capital has gotten more expensive, people are, you know, even if it is available, what you're seeing is a lot of buyers are putting less cap, uh, less debt anyway, because it costs more. So they're really focused on total debt service, right? Which includes principal and interest and making sure that you have enough flexibility and enough cash to be able to invest in your company and actually achieve the growth that you're hoping to achieve. George, I was going to ask you, um, how do you define the lower middle market in terms of the strata? And maybe it's also in terms of like the operating business, because it's, it's difficult to say that it's this amount when we have certain businesses that might make a hundred million or even two hundred million of revenue, but have very paltry margins on that, whereas you know we can see other businesses that are ten million um, and are generating a thirty-five percent or forty percent margin. So where, where do you where do you land it? Yeah, so we typically focus on the on the earnings profile of the business as it relates to um, how we stratify the market, if you will. Right. Because ultimately it's the earnings profile that will drive the enterprise value. Right. Which is, again, another way to kind of stratify it. We we personally define the lower end of the middle market kind of in that five to 15 ish million dollars of EBITDA. I would say a lot of folks would think that it kind of runs all the way up to 50 ish million dollars of EBITDA. Right. Um, and that the middle market is really kind of a one to five billion dollar enterprise value company. Right. Or call it 500 to one point, you know, to a billion or so, um, you know, that that seems large for me. Right. When you think about just the number of companies that are out there and most of them are small businesses. So we define the lower middle market as kind of that five to 15 million dollars of EBITDA. Um, and ultimately that, you know, usually amounts to uh, an enterprise value kind of sub 500 million. And do you find that in that strata that multiples start to get affected because there's this feeling from some of our potential clients that the large cap M&A market informs what's happening you know, lower on the economic deal strata. And we have to correct them time and time again. You know, the earnings uh, per share or, or ratios that you see in large cap 
are uh, not uh, they're, they're not an indication of what you see where in, in the spaces that we occupy. I agree with you 100 percent. Right. Um, there's no question that there's a size premium um, in the marketplace. It really comes down and right, wrong or indifferent. It comes down to perceived risk. Right. Um, and at the end of the day, smaller company can be impacted by smaller things. Right. Versus a larger company. It really has to be a much larger uh, you know, event that really, truly impacts that business. And so there's no question. Plus, it's a little bit of like a proof of concept you know, idea. Right. Like, you know, yes, being around for a very long time is very, very helpful. You might be a good, durable business. But the fact that perhaps you, you haven't grown to a size and scale, there's still a quote unquote lack of proof of concept. Now, I'm telling you what the market sentiment is. I'm not telling you that's what we believe. Right. Um, this is just but perception is reality in an M&A market. Right. At the end of the day. So I, I 100 percent agree with you. As you move down market, so smaller enterprise value, the multiples are very, very different. If you are a 25 million, uh, million revenue company, uh, don't expect to trade like, you know, HCA, right? Um, they just, they're, they're not even on the same playing field. And, you know, given that we focus on family founder owned companies that we actually are communicating and educating business owners on that concept a lot, right? Um, and as I mentioned in, in a previous question around kind of the sponsors and what's happening with valuations as a result of cost of capital and really a tightening of the lending markets, the sponsor community is very dependent on the lending markets to basically drive valuation, right? So when you get lower to, into, into the market, right, smaller transactions, the lending market starts to actually get smaller and smaller and smaller. And so as a result, there's just not as much available. Right. Uh, and, and, and that ultimately chills value. Right. So I think that there's no question um, that there's an inverse relationship uh, as it relates to like as you move down or not, I guess it is a, it's directly correlated as you move down market, uh, you, you should expect the multiples to go down with it. Yeah. And we see that there's pretty conservative lending, though, with the investors we're dealing with. So we're seeing them uh, lending. And, and again, you know, part of what we're doing here, George, is distilling these concepts down to operators so they understand them. So when you talk about sponsors, you're really utilizing that as a term that's uh, interchangeable with private equity. Correct. And, and right. And that the sponsor has a committed capital behind it. But with that committed capital, you still want to put some debt on the transaction, right? That's the power of leverage. And then ultimately yep. that gives you the, the better return on invested capital, which is the real metric that you're, you're going after. Do you find that, that, the, the, that your debt reliance is, is, is very high? I, I know the answer to this, but I'd like you to speak to that because I think that also speaks to uh, how you, you know, how do you sort of de-risk these transactions uh, from an analysis standpoint so that you feel confident going into them and then whatever leverage you're utilizing, that might be good also for the seller, right? Because they might be able to benefit from a higher uh, return on their uh, rollover equity. So maybe kind of taking those concepts and, and speaking to them, you know, as you would an operator. Yeah, look, I think there's um, there's a couple of things to unpack there. Um, let's start with a with a very simple concept, which is that the more debt you have, the more expensive it gets, 
right? Um, and so I think that's really important and, and really, and the more debt you get in theory, right? Um, this is a, a very, this is a generalization, but in theory, if there is more debt available, the equity can pay more money for the business, okay? Now, there is a trade-off, obviously, as we talked about. Operating flexibility gets a little bit tougher, right? Um, it's very expensive nowadays, um, and it's gotten more expensive um, as you move up the capital structure if you have subordinated or mezzanine debt, right? So it, there's, a, there's a massive trade-off there. It also puts the equity at higher risk because you have more leverage, right? And so from our perspective, the way that we approach the market is way more conservative than your average private equity firm. Um, if you look at our 46 portfolio companies, for example, we only have senior debt, right? Um, the senior debt, if you think about the capital stack for, for the folks watching this, is, is the first money out, right? So it is the least risky capital in the capital structure. Because it is the least risky, it has the lowest price, right? So the rate is going to be the best. And so we try to manage our overall debt service and we try to manage our capital structure to stay within the senior debt because ultimately that's much cheaper, much cheaper capital and provides the most flexibility for us to operate the business. Um, you know, what I would tell you is, you know, the, the, the market has tightened a lot, as we've, as we've mentioned, right? Um, and really, it, depending on how you think about capital structure is really what you need to be thinking about as a rollover investment, Right. Um, you definitely a sponsor or a private equity firm is always going to want leverage in their deal. That's how we get the leveraged equity return. As you mentioned, that's how we get the IRRs that are in the double digits, right? The internal rates of return. And that's the expectation of our, of our uh, uh, limited partners or our investors. The question becomes how much risk do you need to take in order to be able to generate that return, right? We tend to fall on the less risky end of that. And what we say is make money the old fashioned way, which is to grow the business, right? Um, which as you grow, as we just talked about, there is a premium for size and scale, right? And ultimately use a cash flow to pay down our debt, which ultimately accrues to the benefit of the equity. Um, and so we are not going to be folks that are going to over lever the balance sheet or maximize leverage um, because we just don't want to live in that environment. Now, from a, from a, from a seller standpoint, you know, that capital structure is going to be really important to, to consider as they think about the risk of the money that is going to be left behind. Right. Um, the more debt there is, the riskier that that capital is going to be. Now, the benefit of the leverage for a business owner, right, is that they can own a larger piece of the business for less dollars. Right. Um, and so there's a there's there's a there's always a trade off. Right. Um, it's a zero sum game. Like a, you, if you gain somewhere, you're losing somewhere else. Right. Um, we have always just felt like capital structure is a great way for us to um, manage our risk and then manage uncertainty, right? Which we've talked a lot about in this podcast around, you know, the M&A markets and the level of uncertainty in the market right now. Um, and so that's really how we think about it, Andy. And I want to get into that too, the, the idea of risk, because when we talk about um, an asset purchase agreement or, or a purchase agreement in general. You, most of the deals you do are probably uh, stock or membership interest purchases. But from that standpoint, when we're, we look at it, we look at it both from the commercial and we look at it from the legal standpoint. And the, the legal sort of exists in, the, in a lot of I, what I believe are a lot of sort of theoretical risks around uh, what's happened under the current ownership's watch and how that might bleed into the new 
uh, organizational structure. And then the, it, it, but, but I think that the commercial itself has those same types of, of risks. And I mean, as an, as an example, I would say that, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, the, this concept of rollover equity, you know, when you talk to your operators, right? And what you want them to have skin in this game, right? And the good thing about it is that you can take some of their chips off the table in the form of cash and maybe in the form of, and I'm not sure if you ever structure any kind of, of promissory note with your sellers, but there's there's definitely much less riskier ways for them to, to cash in on the business. And then you've got this concept of rollover equity. Uh, that's something that it really plays well for us because a lot of owners, they are more interested in not doing the things they hate doing in their business as opposed to selling their business and going and, you know, getting a yacht and, you know, being on, on the high seas. Like it's for them, it's more about I just am so frustrated because I'm dealing with these administrative issues and I'm dealing with, uh, you know, it's, it's payroll. It's it's certain things with personnel where it's gotten them fully away from the actual caregiving that they got into this in the first place, at least from a healthcare standpoint. So how do you, how do you speak to, to owners when you're talking about that concept of, of like, look, there is a commercial risk, but it's, it's kind of theoretical, just like this other stuff over here. Like, how do you talk to those, to those concepts and, and, you know, really focusing on the upside for that? Yeah, I mean, look, I think there's um, that really comes down to alignment, right? Is making sure that there's really good chemistry between the business owner and 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 our, in our case, uh, the sponsor slash private equity firm, right? And really helping them understand kind of the benefits that we bring to the table. I talked a little bit about you know nobody's money is any greener than anybody else's, and so it's really around what are the resources that you bring to bear, right, as a firm to help them and put them in a position to be successful. Right. Um, and avoid having to do some of those administrative things that you're talking about. And we have that conversation every single day because of who we work with. Right. Family founder owned companies. You know, they've reached an inflection point. They've reached a life event. They've reached some something that is a, that is a catalyst for them pursuing a partner. And the question becomes, how is that partner going to help them? Right. And I think that's a really important question for, you know, your 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 founders and sellers to really, you know, look in the mirror and, and, and figure out what are they actually looking for? Right. Like what what it, what are the resources that that they want their partner to have? What are the things that they really want to focus in on? And it's interesting because we ask that question all the time. And surprisingly, the, a lot of folks don't have an answer right away. Right. They really need to think about it. Right. Because they, they, you know, they're firefighters, as I like to say, they're putting out fires every single day. Right. Um, they're constantly working on, you know, making sure that payroll is being met and this and that. And they're dealing with an employee issue or whatever else. And they've never had a chance to actually step back and say, this is what I really like to do and what I would really like to do going forward. Right. And now let me find a partner, proactively seek a partner that can help me achieve that that role. Right. Um, and so. But and part of that part of finding that right partner is really making sure that you're aligned on not only philosophy, but also on where the growth opportunities are. Right. Because, you know, you can diverge really, really quickly uh, with a founder post transaction if you aren't aligned on how you think this business should go. Um, and it's really important for everybody rowing in the right in the same direction. Right. And in many cases, as you mentioned, the business owner has skin in the game. 
right? So they need to be believers of what you're trying to accomplish uh, because if they're not, you're going to be pushing rope as a sponsor, right? You know, that seller is a really important person in that organization. They founded the company, right? The employees are very loyal to that individual. You need to feel good. They need to feel really good about the direction of the business. Otherwise, it becomes really, really uh I would say like poisonous, right? Is probably the is probably the best word to describe it. So really finding the partner, understanding what their philosophy is, understanding what their objectives are and what direction they want to take the business and make sure that that matches up with the business owner is critically important. So we have plenty of examples of situations where we didn't align, right? Um, and we shook the business owner's hand and told them to have a, a, a you know, wish them the best of luck, right? But at the end of the day, if we don't align, we can't work together. Yeah, it's so so much more. It's so much more cultural, at, in scope, and has to do a lot more. We, you know, we talk about trust all the time, but then we also talk about the cultural alignment and the fit. And it's our role in that regard also to identify that uh, in the process, right? So well, we now. don't. Yeah, yeah. Like we we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we're going into due diligence. And we feel like, well, maybe this isn't really how this isn't going to work out in the in the long run, because for us, it has to be not just a successful transaction, but it has to be a partnership that will have success for years to come. And and we also have to be we have to work with you in that regard. That's why we get a lot asked a lot of times. Well, you know, are you uh, somehow compensated by the investor or the buyer in this process? And it, it's not at all that, but we have the interests of the buyer in mind as well, because if the business ends up not being a success after the transaction, then everyone loses. The, the concept of trust is a critical one, right? Um, you know, because I, and it's not only on the commercial side and, and the previous question, you were kind of describing both the legal aspects and then the commercial aspects of it. But even in the negotiation of the legal aspects of it, the trust is critical, right? Because at the end of the day, the legal document is a risk allocation document. Right. And at some point, there needs to be some level of trust that buyer and seller are going to do right by each other. Right. Um, and that it's not a nickel and diming game. Right. So it's that. that the, and you build that trust during the diligence process. Right. And you build it during that legal process. And then ultimately, you carry that trust forward on the commercial side once you close the deal. Right. Trust becomes really, really important. And I'll tell you, like we one of the things and, and just a, a quick commercial for Trivest, right, is that, you know, we have 40 business owners that we transacted with that, you know, 40 plus that invested in our funds. Right. Um, we think that speaks volumes to how we how we behave. Right. And when we think about trust, it's really about doing what we say we're going to do. Right. And if you don't have that trust, you're, you're, you're fighting an uphill battle all the time. Right. So we provide reference lists to all of our you know, potential partners and say, call everybody, please. Right. Um, it's very easy for us to say one thing. Right. But it's another thing from you, from you to hear from somebody who's worked with us. And so that trust factor, you really nailed something there, Andy, that's critically important in any transaction because you will never get to the finish line if there's not some level of trust that's built over that period of time. And you won't be successful post closing if there's no trust post post transaction. George, there's this uh, thing about Trivest that I have always gravitated to. You know, since you you know you started putting together those uh, yearly uh, webinars, yeah, and 
And I, I, when I was working with an investment bank at the time, I, I remember that there was this sense of, wow, these guys are articulating um, and laying out there all the concerns that the the operators that we're dealing with in this you know small business community that they have around uh, capital uh, and and capital markets and you know in particular uh, there was always this idea of like the vulture capital type approach and I think that unfortunately there were a lot of folks that gave it a bad name but what you realized was that it, it, there's no benefit to hiding behind the these mystic terms and and these ideas of of high finance that you really wanted to to come up with a a, a way of of giving these folks a conceptualization that you're you're their partners and you're their peers and that you're really running I, I felt like you were running a small business it's just that your small business was giving people capital and helping them grow their businesses you know, so, you know, that I just that's a kind of a shout out to to TriVest, but it's also uh, talking about, you know, how did the firm, would you feel the firm was on the cutting edge? I do, but do you feel the firm was on the cutting edge of that? And, and how did you come up with that? I think the biggest thing that we did is that we 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 made it part of our culture, right? Um, and really made it an exclusive focus to focus on family and found our own companies. And really, at the end of the day, we kind of just sat around the table and said, you know, if we were sitting in the seat of a business owner, how would we want to be treated, right? Um, understanding that they don't do M&A for a living, right? I say it all the time. When we're on the other side of the table with another sponsor, I get the way the game is played, right? I do it for a living, right? A business owner, in many cases, wants to sell their business. They don't need to sell their business, right? And, and understanding that nuance, right, and then adjusting your approach, to that very, very important detail is critically important to be able to appeal to them, right? And I think a lot of folks, they want to win every single battle along the way, right? And ultimately what they're doing is the relationship is deteriorating all the way to the closing table. And now all of a sudden you're married, right? And how does everybody feel post-transaction? I'm a big fan of of the show Survivor, right? And the thing that I love most about Survivor is you vote people out. And then at the end, those people have to vote you to win, right? And so you got to do it right along the way. And that's kind of the whole concept of how we think about Trivest, which is do right by people along the way. And ultimately, that partnership post-closing is, is going to be much, much better, right? And you guys are going to have a much more successful outcome. So it really is just around being treating people the way that you wanted to be treated. And that's kind of how the concept came about. No, I love that. We, we, we're so in entrenched in this idea that everything is a negotiation, you know, as we're doing this, right. But at the same time, you know, when we establish our engagements with our clients, we, there's a certain dynamic where we have to show them that we can negotiate well. So we have to stick to certain standards within our engagement, but then ultimately we're developing an engagement to be partners into this process and a lot of what we do is we're just very honest about it. I don't know if it helps us sometimes, but there's a lot of firms out there that are telling people what they want to hear. We're telling them the truth and what actually happens. And I think part of it is, too, when we introduce someone like you, and a lot of deals that you have are, are what we would call proprietary deals, where you, you've you actually 
found them on your own through the firm, right? And you do a lot of business development that way. But but when you get that client or that potential seller, uh, it, it, it takes time to develop those relationships. The, the life cycle of these things takes a while because you're saying to them, look, we're, we're going to be your partners in this. Uh, we're not, we can't nickel and dime you now. We can't, you know, beat you down right now and expect you to be uh, our peer and our partner uh, once this thing is, you know, in the works together. So I, I, I love that concept. It, it's, a, it's a really good one. And I, I would argue that the journey of trust for a seller um, begins with an external source with an advisor like us. So it's a much Absolutely. smaller step for them to trust someone like us as opposed to the, the big bad buyer, right? In their eyes, the one that's going to come in, clean shop, fire everybody and flip the business. Yeah, it's a great point, Mark, because I think the, the reality is, is that, you know, they need somebody next to them that understands kind of how the game is played and what the market looks like to help them kind of decipher what's real and what's not, right? There's a lot of really good salesmen in our industry, right? And, and they have a completely different plan than what they're actually telling you. And so having a good advisor who understands the market, understands the buyer universe and understand and has an ability to pick up on little nuances of what how people are saying things and what they're saying is critically important and honestly very valuable to a business owner and ultimately helps facilitate getting to a closing and picking the right partner. I'd argue we have we have so much success in that regard because it's a step ladder of trust. They learn to trust an external source like us. They're warmed up to the concept of letting someone into their house, right? That the concept of their business is a house. And then in comes a buyer like yourself, and it's just much more open of a process. Finally, as we're running up on time here, I don't want to hold you too long, George. Um, what has Trivest done to defend its investment strategy and then protect the returns of its LPs? Yeah, that really goes down to two things, right? One is um, we focus, we, we really focus on what we call relative value, right? Um, which is, you know, where is the market and, and where are we at ultimately, you know, getting a chance to purchase a business, right? Um, and, and we're typically looking for, for decent relative value, right? Um, in many cases, it could be that the company's worth what we're paying for it right now, but we feel very good about our ability to kind of change the profile of that business and make it a premium asset, right? So we're looking at what does a premium asset look like in the marketplace? What does that look like? What are we actually purchasing today? Right. And can we build that bridge from what we have today to that premium asset and ultimately, you know, get that kind of arbitrage, if you will, from a multiple standpoint, um, you know, as it relates to, to the market. The other thing we did, uh, we do, and I, I've mentioned it a couple of times, is really focus on capital structure. Right. That is ultimately the biggest thing. I think the, the biggest fear that most business owners have is, is the debt that's going to be put on their balance sheet. Right. Um, you know, in many cases, at least the business owners that we're dealing with, they have very little debt, if any at all. Right. Um, they spent their entire life working to pay off all of their debt uh, from when they started the business. And now here we come and they're going to get this wonderful liquidity event and we're going to, you know, saddle their balance sheet with with debt. Right. So helping them understand what that means and being you know prudent around how much leverage you're using. And what that does from a flexibility, operating flexibility standpoint is really, really important. And so we try to manage risk through capital structure um, and really focus on that. And then we try to find companies that are in good, durable, recession resistant uh, industries. Right. Uh, at the end of the day, you need to be smart. Um, you know, there's, the rose colored glasses don't work very well in our industry. 
right? Um, you have to be honest with yourself and honest with your investors and with your peers around, you know, what what's going to happen to certain businesses in different cycles or different events, right? I don't think any of us ever expected a pandemic, right? But now it's something that you need to think about when you're underwriting a transaction, right? Um, it's been a while since we've had a recession. Well, that's something that you have to consider every single time that you're underwriting a transaction. And so, you know, being knowledgeable enough around what's going on in the macro environment and ultimately then underwriting and, and, and managing risk associated with that information um, is really, really important to help, you know, manage and uh, manage risk and, and ultimately protect LP capital. Tough to get information in in this strata of the market. And so a lot of it is really based on how we see the fundamentals and how it fits in with, you know, what we do from our perspective in terms of representation, but in your perspective, in terms of your portfolios. So that, that makes a lot of sense. It, it, can I talk about that a little bit too, just in terms of, cause the culture at TriVest, one of the elements too, of getting a deal done, uh, at least the most rewarding have been a high level of likability. Um, and also, you know, being able to get through the difficult times with, uh, with some humor in, uh, you know, and, uh, you, you know, George, uh, it, it, you know, we didn't mention this, but, you know, you and I went to high school together and, uh, and, you know, one of the, um, you, you were younger, uh, you still look significantly <laughs> younger too. <laughs> You're taking very good care of yourself. But, but, you know, I, I thought that what I liked about Trivest too, is there, there was sort of a, a feeling for me of, of home growing up in Miami, growing up in a, in a culture that, you know, we were like, we wanted to have fun, right. We, you know, in the things that we were doing. And I, and I think that that's part of it too, is that you have the capacity as a firm to make uh, these grueling, you know, things like due diligence, you kind of get through it because you're, you're supportive and, you're fun loving and you, and you do have a, a way. Do you, do you think that, because my question is, do you, do you think that ever works against you somehow? Like, Oh, those guys are, aren't serious. Or do you think that like just the world operates better when we don't take ourselves so seriously? Andy, if you want the honest truth, it's if, if, if we're not the right guys, cause you think we're not serious, then we shouldn't be partners. Right. right I mean, right. That's, that's really what it comes down to it. You know, I think our, our approach is life is too short, right? Uh, we all work really, really hard, right? This is a very hard business. Not everything is going to go up and to the right. Not everything's going to go perfectly, right? And so it's really how you do, how, how you uh, behave in those difficult times that really ultimately, um, you know, determines who you are as a person and, and what kind of what kind of relationship you're going to have with people, right? I mean, it does mean no good. Uh, to go and, and rip my CEO um, if, if we have a bad month, you know, it's more like, hey, uh, how do we fix it? Right. What happened? Like, what can we do better? How can we support you? Right. I mean, it, it's really that simple. Um, so I would tell you that it works to our advantage more than it does to our disadvantage. And anybody who just doesn't like that approach, probably not for us. Right. That's OK. There are many fish in the sea. Right. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll rebate and, and go fishing again. Um, so it's, uh, I appreciate that you actually, um, you, you notice that because it is an important part of our culture. Um, and really, as we think, you know, when we hire, like it's a big part of it. Are you a likable person? Like, are you, you know, are you okay? Sometimes not winning every negotiation. Right. Um, because I think there's a, there's a perception of like, you got to win everything to show how smart you are. 
Well, guess what? Sometimes the smartest decision you make is to not negotiate something, right? Um, and ultimately kind of getting out of your own way um, is really, really important. So thank you for that, uh, for saying that, because it is something that we're, we're proud of and that we actually, uh, we really focus in on. Yeah, it's like you look at the finance world and transactions as a team sport. And, yep. you know, and, and you guys are the, you win the spirit award in the locker room, you know, like, it's like, you're the, you're the, you're the guys that are like, okay, we got this. We just need to adjust for a couple of things here and there. So now we, we, we definitely appreciate that. And, and we, we can see it coming through, not just in terms of the transactions you're doing, but also through the, the materials that you put out and uh, you know, and I'm on that newsletter and I always uh, tend to t crack a smile when, when I see what you guys are, are, are putting out there. You know, it's funny. I mean, I think I think uh, I think private equity generally is, is notorious for just taking themselves too seriously. Right. Um, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, uh, you, you don't need to be serious all the time. Right. Um, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to pontificate here, but that's kind of our approach. Right. I mean, we've we do some pretty hokey things and we know they're hokey. Right. Uh, but it gets people interested and it gets people focused and it gets, it gets people's attention, which is ultimately what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's an ecosystem, right? Like you, you can't just be on one track and not take in the external stimuli. Um, so like if you're on this track of like, we're going to get this deal done, you know, we're, we're analysts, we're going to look at every, we're going to scrutinize every element of this transaction. And you're not also taking into account what's happening outside of that or, or that, you know, you, you need to depressurize somehow. And you, you got to give the folks, the counterparties a break uh, occasionally, right? And we, we try to set up timelines and we try to set up a lot of structure so that they can go into due diligence and, you know, eat the elephant one bite at a time, right? And, and it's not, and then, and then, you know, have some fun with it along the way. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, that you just, we, we get those deals done where, where we can laugh um, on occasion under the, these highly pressurized circumstances. Yeah. And listen, I think it's, I think it's great advice and um, to your, to your, your clients, right. Which is be themselves, right. At the end of the day, I think that ultimately will, you'll, you'll find a better partner that way. If you like to joke around, you know, like it's okay to drop a joke in there. Right. I mean, people appreciate that. Cause as you said, it's a, it's a pressure cooker environment. There's a, there's a lot of things going on. There's always timelines and everyone's trying to do things as quickly as possible. But at the end of the day, finding that really good partner that you match up with culturally um, is probably the most important thing. Uh, and because, again, you're going to be married to this individual for a while. Um, so you better make sure that you guys work well together. And so being yourself as a business owner um, and letting them see kind of who you really are and how you like to operate is critically important uh, to make sure that you find the right partner. Well, on that positive note, thank, thanks, George, for the conversation. Um, really insightful. Uh, we're, we're looking forward to sharing this with our network here shortly. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, for, for more content in line with this, you can visit us at our website, mahealthcareadvisors.com. You'll also find podcast episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for coming, and uh, we look forward to sharing more content with you soon. Thanks.